0: Welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our first season of rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. In this episode, we continue our three-part series on the Holy Trinity of Aristotelian appeals. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of pathos. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started.
1: Cor, ad cor, loquitur.
0: It's beautiful, Tim.
1: And very succinct.
0: So, Tim, what is pathos?
1: It is commonly understood as the appeal by reference to orphans and abandoned puppies. While it is true that the Academy has a fondness for logos appeals, an all logos argument is suitable only to Mr. Spock or Commander Data.
0: You know, my wife's definition of pathos is what I'm supposed to do with those bills. (laughs) Right? So rhetoric isn't just about making sound arguments. Rhetoric is uh, addressed to people, and we're emotional creatures. Indeed. Right? And so good logic doesn't always win the day. Uh, Sometimes appeals to emotions are uh, key to rhetorical and persuasive success. So Aristotle gives us a nice discussion of uh, of emotions, right? Pathos, we get the word empathy. Mm-hmm. Other words? Sympathy. Uh, pathetic. Pathetic. You pathetic. <laughs> this is our most pathetic episode. Yeah. Right? Uh, Aristotle gives us a, a handy discussion of these uh, emotions, and, and in some instances, he talks about how we can apply these to uh, uh, rhetorical endeavors.
1: Now, is there any hypocrisy when used, for example, in a court of law? Aristotle starts his rhetoric by criticizing previous arts of rhetoric for arousing of prejudice, compassion, anger, and similar emotions having no connection with the matter at hand. Aristotle says doing so in a court of law would be like warping the rule one used to measure something.
0: You know, it's funny. Uh, you know the distinction between Aristotle and Cicero in terms of pathos?
1: What is that distinction?
0: Aristotle will use it completely throughout, mm-hmm. but Cicero only uses it at the end Oh, to nail that winning argument in court. Okay, He's a court orator. Uh, he was court, but he's also an assembly guy, and yeah. Aristotle makes a
1: distinction between what you should do in the assembly, where mm-hmm. people are not ruled by emotion, mm-hmm. and what you should do in the court, where people are possibly ruled by emotion.
0: Nice. You want to get in the emotions? Yeah. Shall we start with anger? Anger. Furious anger. What is anger, Tim? Uh, it's when
1: one feels one has, one has been wronged and desires revenge. You can't just be angry in general. You have to be able to correct it, you know, pitchforks and whatnot.
0: Yeah. So uh, I can't just be angry at the world. Well— Can you? I I know some
1: people who seem to be angry at the whole world, but Aristotle would say not. Aristotle would say you're going to be angry at specific individuals.
0: Angry only to the extent that you can be angry at people that you are able to uh, uh, get your anger out on them. And get revenge. Yeah, there you go. That's the key thing is getting revenge. Because if you can't get revenge, you can't be angry. That's something else that we'll discuss later. All right. Right? Hatred. Now, how would you cause anger? Mm, I would slap somebody in the face with a fish.
1: (laughs) Would that be a form of showing contempt for that person?
0: Possibly, right? Making them feel unimportant Mm -hmm. or whatever they've done was unimportant. Yeah. So, for example, uh, if you created a great masterpiece of art and I looked at it and goes, hmm. That's contempt. It is. It is. Now, what about showing spite? Spite. Um, what's a good example of showing spite? So, let's say uh, we're going to an art store. This is all about art now. Okay. Not the man art, yeah. but art, the practice of art. Let's say you go into an art store. They have one bottle of orange mm-hmm. um, and uh, yellow ochre. Let's use yellow ochre. That's more uh, studious. Okay. So, yellow ochre. I don't paint, but I see you going for it, and so I buy it just so you can't have it. Just to spite me because you don't want me to get the yellow ochre.
1: Mm. That, would, that would cause anger in me.
0: Yeah, and then you could take revenge yeah. by hitting me in the face with a giant fish. I would do that. And the last one, show insolence. Okay. Rude, disrespectful behavior. Take people, rob their, of them of uh, their honor. Interestingly, one of my
1: first bosses described me as insolent. In he, retrospect, I think he may have been onto something.
0: You know, I think as Americans, it's our job to be insolent. Okay. Right? We're supposed to be rude and disrespectful. That's yeah. what our country was built on, right? The founding fathers. <laughs> we were you know, rude to King George. Uh, flipping the tables of old uh, King George. Yeah. Isn't that what we're supposed yeah. to do? That's why I like to run from the police every chance I get. <laughs> All right. And so a speaker can use these, uh, this idea of emotions of anger and uh, uh, arousing anger and revenge on people in speak and speeches. Uh, you know. Uh, getting people to go to war. Yeah. Right. Or getting anger at your opponent, whoever you're debating. Yep. You got to anger them up to go to war. And the opposite of anger is calm. Mm. The absence of anger. Mm. Aristotle does this a lot, right? He gives us one uh, one emotion and gives us kind of the opposite. He
1: and his contemporaries were very much into antithesis. They mm. really liked things in opposition to each other.
0: So what is calm? Uh, it's the opposite of anger. Nice. Having a good time, yeah. laughing, mm-hmm. drinking beer. Yep. Not paying attention to your duties at home—absolutely, those kind of things. If somebody's helped you, it's hard to be angry at them. Yeah, you
1: can't stay angry at somebody who just helped you out of a jam.
0: Yeah, if I gave you that yellow ochre, and you're like, "Oh, thank you," right? Yeah. It's, it's going to be very hard for you to be angry. Uh, Or if you don't know somebody, if you're a stranger. Mm -hmm. I've been angry at many strangers, but Aristotle seems to think differently.
1: Yeah, they they had this thing called the guest friend, and so they sort of had this attitude towards uh, the other that was you're supposed to be welcoming to them and and treat them nicely.
0: Yeah, I usually uh, just don't answer the door. (laughs) That's my strategy. And a speaker can use this to get people to express their anger, to get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a way to get people calm. Uh, Take pity on them. Or realize that somebody has, you know, suffered similarly and been punished. Because you can't be angry, Aristotle says, if somebody has received justice.
1: Now, I wonder how these approaches stack up to against current theory on conflict resolution or de-escalation of crises. I wonder if anybody is reading Aristotle as they're trying to figure out how to calm things down. I don't know. What do you think? I think they are probably gone for somebody more modern. Who yeah, if, if I'm angry in the streets, I'm not
0: breaking out rhetoric and reading yeah. it right there. Yeah. Um. But possibly, it could be a handy resource. Mm-hmm. Uh, another emotion Aristotle talks about is friendship. Yeah, feeling you know, uh, uh, what is it? Altruistic towards a friend, mm-hmm. giving you know for the sake of giving and not uh, for your own betterment. Uh, exactly. And I think he talks about he talks about twenty seven. Twenty-seven types of distinctions of friends, and he,
1: interestingly, he had twenty-eight topoi. So he really likes to kind of operate in the high twenties for his lists.
0: Well, it's true, but I was also he works in threes, and so mm-hmm. nine times three uh, there you is go. twenty-seven, and yeah. three times three is nine. I mean, it works out mathematically. It is. It does. Uh, but uh, that Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, probably had three three it's, basic rules. Well, it's, you got twenty-seven here. So if you need the help making friends and no need to know what to do, uh, Aristotle gives us some good uh, good points. So friends are, uh, here's just some examples. Friends share same the same values, right?
1: And kind of like our mutual love of cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers are delicious. probably what, what makes us friends.
0: I think that's what uh, can bring peace to the Middle East, mm-hmm. is a delicious cheeseburger. <laughs> you, uh, you might be right. Right? Having the same enemies as well. Yeah. Right? We hate, what do we both hate? Yeah,
1: hating the, hating the same people. We hate the administration.
0: And so a speaker can use this, a rhetor can use this to show that friends aren't really friends or enemies aren't really enemies or something like that.
1: Yeah. Now, that reminds me of a Joan Jett song where she thinks you've got nothing to lose. You don't lose when you lose fake friends.
0: Yeah. I guess that's true. Could be. Right? Hatred Mm. is the opposite of friendship.
1: Yeah. It seems a little strong. It seems like friendship is kind of mild and hatred is really strong, but I guess certainly uh, I don't know if there is another opposite of friendship. Mm. Un, un, well, unfriending. So we now have a an action which is opposite of friending. But, yeah, defriending. Yeah, but I think hatred is...
0: Hatred's yeah. pretty strong. Yeah. Uh, Aristotle talks about this. And interestingly, hatred is where you hate... Not what the person's done, but who the person is, Yeah. right? So Aristotle talks about he hates thieves and sycophants. Yeah. I love that word, sycophants. I, uh, do you know the etymology of it? I do not.
1: Uh, one one account says it means fig shaker. So basically you're shaking the fig tree to get the figs to come down. I used to dance
0: under that name <laughs> back in the 80s. The fig yeah. shaker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but sick of it for all our fabulous listeners at home is basically an ass kisser. Oh yeah, right, exactly. Brown noser, so, brown noser. Uh, but I will now call it as a fig shaker. There you go. Right uh, now, Aristotle distinguishes a hatred from uh, uh, anger in a number of ways. He says anger is temporary, but hate is forever.
1: I love that. I would put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, a, whether it's true or not, it just has such it's a such a pithy well, er, yeah, statement.
0: Yeah, uh, Aristotle does say uh, that hatred will last until the object of hate is no more. Ah, so I don't know if that's like a subtle nod to say you you know rub them out mm-hmm. Could or be. wait until you know they're dead.
1: Maybe if he leaves Athens and goes somewhere else down the road. Yeah. Mm.
0: Uh, Aristotle says people display their anger. Another distinction, he says people display their anger, but they'll hide their hate, which I I find that to be true. Yeah,
1: I think there's some subtle truth to that. So basically, you know, you're angry at something and you show it, but if you really hate somebody, you generally don't show it. You kind of keep that stuff.
0: So my question is you. How would a speaker or a a rhetor use this if you're not supposed to show your hatred? Um, That's a good question. See, this is the, the the critique of Aristotle here is he talks more about the psychology of these emotions, not necessarily all about how a speaker can use these.
1: Mm. Hmm.
0: All right, moving on, fear.
1: Oh, that's a biggie.
0: Oh, I hate fear. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I also fear bees, <laughs> right, giant bees. Uh, Fear for uh, Aristotle is the anticipation of some pain or some evil that is soon to come. He says you can only fear things that are uh, relatively uh, uh, near in the future, not things that are far off. And he might be
1: wrong there. I know some people who kind of really live in the future, and so they're afraid of stuff that's going to happen when they're old and in an old folks home. It makes no sense to me, but I think there are people who I'm afraid
0: when the sun will explode and incinerate everything (laughs) that we've ever known. Right, That terrifies me. But I won't be here. No. Not unless it happens tomorrow. I checked the weather forecast. It seems pretty reasonable. Uh, People who can be feared. Oh, yeah. uh, Those who might leave us or abandon Mm -hmm. us. Those who feel like they've been wronged. And I was first questioning this, uh, but it's, you know, people who feel like they've been wronged may take revenge at any moment, Mm -hmm. right, when you least suspect it. Uh, Those who are stronger or smarter. Okay. Now, it
1: seems like he's got quite a list of people to be feared. Is there anybody who he leaves out who is not
0: to be feared? Who shouldn't you fear? Even, I think if my memory serves, he even says you can fear slaves and those subordinates below you yeah. because they might turn on you. They might. So, yeah, I guess, I guess. I fear everybody. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Confidence is the uh, opposite of fear. Mm-hmm. The ability to overcome what is feared. Yeah. How can a speaker use this?
1: Uh. A speaker could use this by saying that they are right. They're good with the gods, which reminds me of an old 97 song that uh-huh. starts off saying they're good with the gods. So now I'm thinking, why is it that so many contemporary rock musicians seem to be citing Aristotle's uh, chapter on pathos?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, you know, when I was thinking of uh, anger, this well, I guess this isn't a song. It's more popular culture. Um, I forget the name of the movie that – that, uh, the guy runs out, he loses his mind on network television, and I think it's called Network, is it? Yes, it is. Where he runs to the door, <laughs> and I think he says, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. It that's great. I love that. I think he's taking revenge on all of society, right? Ah, I so I guess is. that's not anger. Yeah. At least according to Aristotle. His and that,
1: that was a wonderful movie, and I think it recently became a stage play, if I'm not correct. Hmm. Uh, another emotion is shame. Oh, yeah. Shame Which, is a biggie.
0: So in, uh, uh, what is it, Greek culture? Your face, your reputation, your honor was very important. Yeah.
1: Now, this notion of saving face, I think of that as sort of an Asian concept, but um, certainly, you know, being oh, mm-hmm. disrespected in ancient Greek was a problem. Certainly among the uh, the Trojans. Mm-hmm. So the the uh, advice from a mother to her son as he's going off to battle is, you come back with your shield or on it. Yeah. You know, so if you drop your shield and retreat, that's that's you know, not good. She's going to kill you.
0: Yeah. My mom was just worried about me getting dirt in the house, right? <laughs> Those kind of things. Uh, and there are, so you can be shamed by some people, Aristotle says, and that's not bad, mm-hmm. right? So the crazy lunatic on the street, right, who's saying, you know, we're all going to hell for yeah. tolerating our liberal society. Well,
1: no, can they shame you or
0: not? Uh, I think they can, but it doesn't matter, right? Mm. So shame from people you respect, your contemporaries. Okay.
1: So, so shame, yeah, basically the, the person who can shame you has to have, you have to hold that person in some, some esteem. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that.
0: Um, so some examples of shame that I thought about. Uh, or at least Aristotle, Aristotle talks about uh, taking advantage of others or shirking your responsibilities. Okay.
1: Now, now, what about this driving and singing?
0: You ever been driving in your car? Yeah. And some song comes on. I don't know what song it is. Afternoon delight. Okay.
1: And you start singing. You're singing
0: away. You pull up to a stoplight, and somebody looks over, <laughs> and they're staring at you doing that. And you've is been that, caught. Is that shameful? Might not be. Well, again, it
1: probably depends upon the song. Afternoon yeah. Delight might be a, a song that you should be ashamed to be singing. What,
0: what song would you not be, the, uh, would be ashamed of singing? You know, Star-Spangled Banner?
1: Born in the USA.
0: Oh. Well, we are in New Jersey. I think yeah. that's, you know, you have to do that before you press the walk signal to cross mm. the street. Uh, Aristotle also says, uh, having sexual relations with those who, uh, with those whom one should not or where one should not be having sex... Or, so,
1: or when one should not. So I had yeah. no idea that Afternoon he, had,
0: delight, huh? he had
1: so many different rules about sex. Now, speaking of that, where are some places where you definitely should not have sex?
0: Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say at a funeral. <laughs> okay.
1: That's a pretty good one. I'd say in a church. Uh, Shouldn't have sex in a church. When church is in session. There you go. What about a Walmart?
0: Uh, I actually think, what time? Uh, <laughs> right, if it's like three a.m. when they're stocking the shelves, yeah, I'm not saying. Okay, I mean, I think
1: I think having sex in a Walmart would be shameful under any circumstances.
0: Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think just yeah, that could be pretty shameful. Uh, are you suggesting that, say, Target is a more appropriate place? Oh yeah, Target is. I mean, I, oh, it's the classier.
1: I, I pronounce it Target. Oh
0: yeah, I don't. I just call it Target. Hmm. I'm pretty cool with that. Um, yeah, Aristotle does talk a lot about sex and all this. Maybe it's a big emotion. Now, uh, the next one, Aristotle, next uh, emotion is shamelessness. I would say that's probably the opposite of shame, seems, shamelessness. Seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. Uh, George Kennedy, right? You know George Kennedy. I do. Noted Aristotelian scholar, mm-hmm. right? It's difficult to imagine in any situation in which an orator would want to create a deliberate feeling of shamelessness. Wow. So that's just like, we can pass this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, basically, you just opened up the Kennedy can of worms, and so his 1992 article, "A Hoot in the Dark," posits that animal communication as a way of understanding some basic feature of rhetoric that might be stated as general rules. I don't think we're ready for that. I'm not. That, I'm not. That's season two, maybe that's even season three or four.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, another emotion is kindlessness, in, uh, uh, or kindness, I should say, and benevolence. I love them. Right, being altruistic, being nice to somebody, mm-hmm. doing something for the sake of being nice without seeking recognition. No reward whatsoever. No reward. Um, that's like friend, being uh, friendly, right, mm-hmm. friendship. But Re- this could be not necessary with somebody Close, it could just be anyone.
1: Yeah, and and recent research shows that rather than doing this because of your noble character, sometimes you'll do it because you just packed a, passed a bakery and smelled some fresh bread mm-hmm. or you just found a dime in the return slot in a telephone. Okay. Uh, yes. So this will cause you to engage in kindness. Pretty weird, eh? That is weird.
0: Uh, pity?
1: Yeah. Oh, pity. Pity and fear, those were the two biggies for the, the Greeks when they're talking about uh, theater. Pity's what is pity, beer. Tim? Pity is a sadness because someone has suffered some evil that they do not deserve.
0: Hmm. What's an example of that? Like if I was walking down the street and somebody slapped me in the face with a fish unexpectedly? Well, you did the person me. know you? No, it was just, <laughs> okay. they were just randomly swinging a fish.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you did not deserve to be struck by a stranger yeah. with a fish.
0: Now, if somebody had slapped me with a fish and I had slapped them earlier with a fish?
1: Or basically if they just knew you. That's you true. Know, they got, that's true. A grudge. Right. And he's and, he's fish slappable.
0: That's true. Right. That's not. That's the uh, emotion I would add. Uh, indignation mm. is another. Yeah. Righteous indignation. I saw that when I was reading my secondary sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, being pained at somebody's undeserved good fortune. It's almost yeah. like the opposite of pity is they don't deserve it. Okay. But indignation is somebody got something good and they don't deserve it. Okay. Now. These
1: two basically are sounding a little bit like jealousy. Is there a distinction between indignation and just plain envy?
0: Envy is you want to be like that person. Okay. You don't want them to lose it. But emulation is you want it for yourself. So if I'm if I'm if I remember correctly, indignation is you got some good fortune. You don't deserve it.
1: And I, that ticks you off.
0: I, it makes me upset. Envy is you got good fortune, but it's it's we're Justified. on equal terms, okay. right? And, and so it's like I'm happy for you, but I'm also kind of upset
1: because you would like the same good fortune that I got. Well, that's emulation. Oh, okay. So emulation is, according to Aristotle,
0: the opposite of envy. The opposite of envy, okay. and envy uh, is pain at somebody's fortune. Except when it's directed at someone who is a peer, right? So right. Of, of equal status. Okay. And I guess your initial point, indignation and envy, are very similar, mm-hmm. except who the other person is.
1: Okay. So if this person is the same status as you, you're envious of them. huh. And if the person is a different status of you, and yeah. they got something that you feel is undeserved, so you're let's indignant. say that
0: the upper administration, the people that make millions of dollars, got extra millions of dollars, we would be indignant at that. Yeah. But we would you, be
1: envious of the money, but indignant at them. That's a good point. Oh. Yeah, and but, so
0: we might try to want to emulate them. Yeah. And say, well, I want to be one of those millionaires. Okay. Or we could just be angry, <laughs> right? And seek yeah. revenge. Yeah. And keep our souls. So I think we wow, that was a nice discussion that covered those last three pretty nicely. Okay. Tim, you ready to wrap this up? I am. Aristotle's rhetoric gives us a good discussion of factors that affect our emotions and how a rhetor can use these. Uh, or appeal to these emotions, and in some instances, he kind of directly explains how we can use those to arouse the emotions of the audience. And these aren't about anthem memes, they're not about logic, they're just appealing to people and how they feel. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle suggests and tells us that by studying these, that's where you can learn where something is more appropriate or not, because there's no rules for emotions, you can't. There you go. That. Uh, and, you just have to have experience.
1: And now this concept of appropriateness brings us back once again to what the Greeks called ta prepon, what the Romans called decorum, which is something Richard Lanham describes as a creative as well as pious concept, that it creates the social reality which it reflects. I love it. I do too.
0: All right. Are you ready for a challenge, Tim? I am. Do you have one for me? I do. Okay,
1: Dave. You're in a promotion and tenure committee meeting, and a senior faculty who is soon to retire is advocating for a younger colleague, and she concludes her case by stating that the new colleague will represent her legacy in the department, something woefully cut short because of the fact that the senior faculty now has stage four liver cancer. How Mm -hmm. do you respond?
0: Uh, How do I respond on the vote on the case? Yes. I would vote yes. Yes. Regardless of all that. (laughs) I vote yes because <laughs> you uh,
1: like people to get tenure.
0: I like people to move up in this world, and I think helping people get good jobs and keep good jobs is important, as long as they met the criteria for it.
1: And so then the senior faculty kind of dropping the stage for liver cancer totally unnecessary. It was gratuitous pathos.
0: I would see when it that. I, I gratuitous is a good word, right? Uh, in the cold hard clinical world of promotion and tenure, do you meet the criteria? Yes or no. Appeals to emotion. Might be nice, but are unnecessary. All right. I like
1: that. You're showing quite a principled stance there.
0: It's the only stance you can take. That's my position. Now, I had two challenges for you. One I already asked you. One was about the difference between Cicero and Aristotle. Okay. Um, The other one was um, this discussion of emotions does not seem to fit within the book, Mm -hmm. the rhetoric. It just seems plopped out of nowhere. Okay. Why is it here?
1: Well, there's a lot of theories about what is in any Aristotelian text. Uh, One theory says these weren't actually composed by Aristotle to be published. These are the kind of lecture notes that his students took down and put Mm -hmm. together, and that's why sometimes uh, they don't cohere into what seems like a a, a nice whole. Uh, Another thing is we know that some things written by Aristotle were written early in his career, and then later on he's writing on the same topic. And so it's quite possible that he did the front end, and he's got the three parts and you know, logic and enthymemes mm-hmm. and all that. Later on, he's writing about emotions. And these things got combined with that earlier text, not by Aristotle, but by some later editor. Mm-hmm. So um, the dominant argument seems that book one and two do belong together mm-hmm. because they're about the theory of rhetoric. And book three, which is more about style, Mm -hmm. that's the one that might not belong with one and two.
0: It's a pastiche.
1: It is. Nice. We good? We're good.
0: Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel.
1: Here we go. This brings back memories.
0: Looks like it's time for another historical tidbit.
1: What do you got for us, Tim? I've got a pathos-rich story that comes from the Acta Sanctorum, or the Acts of the Saints, and it's the story of Cassian of Imola. Cassian lived in the early days of the Christian era and made his living teaching writing to privileged children of imperial Rome. Unlike today, when even the poorest children in America are given writing instruction, in those days, writing was taught only to the sons of the elites. Instruction was surprisingly similar to that of today. One teacher assigns appropriately challenging tasks to many students and responds in various ways, including by pointing out the errors inevitable among novices attempting to master a difficult new task. The technology was remarkably similar to that employed in modern classes previous to the word processor. Each student had a tablet and a stylus that was used both for writing and erasing. Instead of paper and pencil, however, the tablet had a coating of wax, and the stylus had a pointed end for writing letters and a flattened spooned end for smoothing out errors or simply deleting the draft to make room for a new text. Little is known about Cassian's life, although the traditional accounts converge on some of the details of his martyrdom. He was a schoolmaster at Imola, But rather than sacrifice to the Roman gods, as so ordered by the current emperor Julian the Apostate, he was condemned to death and turned over to his own pupils. Since they were eager for revenge for the many punishments he had inflicted on them, they bound him to a stake and tortured him to death by stabbing him with their pointed iron styli, the devices then used to mark wooden or wax-writing tablets. Isn't that pathetic?
0: That is. Kind that is revenge. That is revenge uh, times a million. What they do with the uh, spoon end of that thing? I think they
1: used that for slicing. So the the pointy end they stuck him with it, uh-huh. and the spoon end had a sharp edge, and they were just kind of they were flaying him with their uh, metal erasers.
0: What would be the modern equivalent of that? Uh, mm-hmm. Like if a student were to do that to their teacher now, would they just take a keyboard and just slap him <laughs> in the face like a piece of fish? Could
1: be, or maybe they would. You know, uh, take some video of the teacher doctorate, you know, put the teacher in subjective compromising positions and publish it on YouTube.
0: Before we go get some cheeseburgers, let's take care of some business. Tim, who's sponsoring this episode?
1: I am very happy to introduce a new sponsor because they have developed a product that will improve my life greatly, but is not something that will do much for you. How's that, Tim? Well, Dave, as our listeners may or may not have suspected, you are a younger man than I. So unlike me, you don't likely suffer the recurring challenge each morning that we old folks do.
0: And just what really is this remarkable new product that you speak of, Tim?
1: Dave, I am happy to announce the latest breakthrough in geriatric quality of life, Spray On Socks. Thanks to an innovative marriage of the technologies behind Spray Tan and Silly String, elders can now swathe their feet and ankles in a soft, luxurious blend of Pima cotton and Dacron polyester available in athletic white, dress black, charcoal gray, and now for the very first time, direct from their textile manufacturing incubator lab at the University of Strathclyde, Spray-On Argyle Socks, derived from the tartan of Clan Campbell of Argyle in Western Scotland. That's right, Dave, Spray-On Socks in athletic white, dress black, charcoal gray, and now for the first ever fashion-forward Spray-On Argyle Socks.
0: I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been Rhetorico Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric.
1: We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago.
0: Rhetorico Rama is recorded at Casto di Pado Studios. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library.
1: Now let's go get some cheeseburgers.